Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Okay, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. By way of review, last week we looked at verses 11 through 16, and that was when God basically cursed Cain, called him on the carpet for the murder of Abel, and then finally sent him sent him away out of his presence. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be following the line of Cain. Basically, we're going to follow uh, some of the descendants that come from Cain's line. And what we're going to end up doing or what we're going to end up seeing is that this is going to be the first of several times in the book of Genesis where there's a family line or a family tree, if you will, of sorts, and it's a branch that the narrative doesn't really care about, <laughs> okay, if we, if we could say it that way. It's laid out there as to, okay, here's some preliminary information. We just want to let you know this is what happened, and these are some of the sons and daughters born to these people. Uh, but we're going to move on to the more important stuff is kind of the way that the, the way Genesis is written out. So in this situation, we're going to be looking at Cain's line just for several generations, and then it's going to move on to the line of Seth. We're going to in, be introduced to Seth and at the end of this passage that we're looking at today, and that's the beginning of chapter 5. So the biblical narrative is concerned more with the line of Seth than it is with Cain, because that's the line that God's going to do his stuff through. All right, That's the line God's going to do his great things through. We're going to find through the line of Cain, it's not an admirable line. Okay, There are people in this line that uh, you don't want to invite to the family get-togethers, all right? <laughs> if you will. All right. So we're going to be looking then at verses 17 through 26. Somebody mind reading 17 through 26, chapter 4. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot... I should have apologized. <laughs> I should have forewarned you that there's several hard names in here. Okay, I'll try my best. All right. Um, Mehuel, and Mehuel begot Meshel, Meshel begot Lamech. The Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And then last two verses. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain, Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. 
Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Well done. <laughs> Those are some hard names yeah. right there. So now we have a little bit of information that we can start to put together kind of a family tree. Okay? So who's going to start our tree? What are the first two names we're going to put at the very top? Let's start at the very beginning. Adam. Yep. Adam and who? Adam and Eve. There you go. Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve end up having some children, right? So who, name me some children of Adam and Eve. Cain. Good. You got Cain. We've got Abel. Who else? And we end up seeing and meeting at the very end of this passage we looked at just now, Seth. So this passage that we're looking at right here follows along Cain's line. So who does Cain have as his firstborn? Enoch. Enoch, good. So Cain ends up having a son named Enoch. If we said this Adam and Eve generation, we'll count that as one. We'll put Cain to Enoch as number three. Who's number four? Who does Enoch have? I read. I read. Okay, good. And then who's next after Irad? Matthew Hahel. <laughs> All right, how do you spell that? <laughs> M-E-H-U-J-A-E-L. J-A-E-L, okay, sounds good. Who's after that? Methuselah. Oh, how do you spell that? Meth. Okay. <laughs> Ha-L. <laughs> okay, very good. Who's after that? Lamech. 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 Sure, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'll admit to you. I, I've been saying Lamech, but who knows? I don't even know. And then we've got family tree that we're looking at right here. It's pretty vertical so far, right? It's one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Something happens, though, after Lamech, right? He ends up, we find out, he takes two wives. And from those two women, they end up having four children that we know of that are mentioned. Three boys and a girl. Who are the, who are the children there? Jabal. Okay. How do you spell that? J-A-B-A-L. Good. Next one. His brother named was Jubal. J-U-B-A-L. All right. J-U-B-A-L? J-U-B-A-L. Sounds good. Next one. Tubal Cain. Good. And the last one. Namah. Namah. How do you spell that? N-A-A-M-A-H. Sounds good. All right. So here we have what's beginning to develop a family tree. So we're going to get to talk about some of these a little bit. Now, first off, who's heard of Enoch before? Yeah, we would raise our hand and say, yeah, I recognize that name. Mm-hmm. I should say this, though. The Enoch that you and I are most familiar with is a different Enoch than this guy. So that's why I want to bring it up, so that we don't confuse the Enoch from Cain with the Enoch that ends up coming from Seth. All right. There's also a Lamech in Cain's line and a Lamech in Seth's line. Okay. So there are some name duplications the Enoch over here, neat guy. In fact, let's look just a little bit at him. If you look at verse 24, that's probably chapter 5, verse 24 is probably the most famous part you know about Enoch. What does it say about him there? And Enoch walked with God and he was not, God took him. Yeah. Is, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the Enoch that we're most familiar with? Yeah. So we recognize that there's an Enoch over there that has that neat thing about him. And we're going to obviously talk about him more when we get over to that section, who's different from this Enoch here. Okay. Some of the things also to look at. Turn to chapter 5, verse 4, and read to me what it says there. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. Excellent. Thank you. The reason I had you read that verse there is because Cain, Abel, and Seth are not the only children from Adam and Eve. 
And we've looked at that just in passing before, and now I want to make sure to mention it again. Because you'll see the way I've drawn this line here. It's as if it goes on, right? There are other sons and daughters that we don't know about. The text is really only concerning itself with the people that are named. There are others that aren't named, okay? There's a lot more people than the list is actually portraying, all right? This is just talking generation, one to the next, to the next, to the next, all right? So there are other children after Seth. There's nothing that prohibits or would restrict these children from having to be after Seth. There could be before. You know, they could be all through here. They could be between Cain and Abel, between Abel and Seth. You could have sons and daughters happening here. So when we get to this situation with Cain, and we start off this passage right here, and it talks about Cain and his wife, where did Cain get his wife? Any, any one of the children. Any one of the children. If you live 800 years, you might have a few kids. That's right. So we've got lots of people being born. Yeah, Adam and Eve. Adam ends up being 930 years old before he passes away. So there's a lot of kids coming from him. So where did Cain get his wife? It was probably one of his sisters. That sounds gross to us nowadays, right? But back then, the gene pool is not corrupted like it is now. All right, It wasn't a prohibition until later on when Moses takes God's words and gives them to the people in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9. At that point, no, we're not doing the brother-sister thing anymore. All right? But at this point, it's not prohibited. And in fact, it's necessary because that's all there is to choose from. All right. So at that time, Cain probably ends up marrying a sister. And then he, uh, but I say probably because it, I mean, theoretically, you're living that long. It could be a niece. But basically, he's married a close relative. And it's not a big deal at this point in the story. Okay? So Cain ends up finding a wife somewhere, somebody who decides they can live with Cain. Somebody who decides that mark on you, some, uh, I can live with that. I'm in love with you. I love him. I don't care about the mark on him. <laughs> okay? How that's, you know, go with Adam and Eve. But Dad, I want to marry him. <laughs> All right? So anyway, he finds somebody to marry him, and uh, they end up having a son. They name him Enoch. What does it say about Enoch and the strange situation there, about the Enoch after Cain, that came from Cain? And he built a city and called the name Enoch? Uh, that was Cain. Let me see. No, you're right. That's, that's yeah. actually what I'm looking for. Yeah. So it says he built a city. Now, most of the commentators will point out it's not clear who built the city. It's just a generic he. It could have been... It could have been Cain built the city, or it could have been Enoch built the city. Until you get to the end of the verse where it says and named it after his son, Enoch. So most of them say, well, I guess it was Cain that built the city because he names it after his son and his son is Enoch. Okay? Here's the weird thing about that. Remember the curse that God gave to Cain? Remember, you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be a vagabond. And we turn the page, he's gotten married, he's got a kid, he's settling down. That sounds like he's thwarting the curse of God, in a sense, right? It's not what we would expect. We would expect the guy is going to be all over the place, never able to get settled, and here he ends up building a city. That's kind of strange. What's going on here? One of the possibilities, and one of the things that I've read, uh, run across a couple times, is that they say uh, that when Cain ends up getting married and he has a son, and now we've got people populating, right? I mean, you don't need a city unless there's people that are willing to live there, right? So we've got a population growth that's going on, su sufficient enough to actually warrant a city. And what do you have in a city? You have a bunch of people coming together, and typically you have people that start to specialize in this or that, right? And there's the opportunity for trade. So you might have somebody who's able to grow livestock, and you might have somebody who's able to uh, provide you know, agricultural goods for the, for the community, and other people are able to provide services. See what I'm go where I'm going with this? 
Cain can't grow anything. Mm-hmm. Right? That was part of the curse. God said, get out, and you know what? You think you used to be able to grow stuff and you had to work hard for it? Well, now you're going to work hard and it's not going to give you anything. So Cain can't grow anything. Maybe perhaps time goes by and he decides, if I can get a bunch of people together, they could grow stuff and I could build houses. <laughs> you know, Maybe he's looking for a way to cope with the curse that thwarts or thumbs its nose at God in a sense and says, you know what? I got a plan figured out and I'm going to do this on my own. And he provides the opportunity for people to come together. Somebody's growing food. Somebody else is growing livestock. Cain wants to eat. He can trade services in building houses and structures for being able to eat. All right, so that's a possibility right there. Forced to adapt, too, I mean, really. Yeah, forced to adapt, exactly, right. So, and also, like I said, regarding the city, that also indicates that we've got more than just Cain, Abel, and Seth going on here. If we need a city, we've got people that are going to be populating the city. It's the other sons and daughters and the people that are coming from them. Okay. By the way, this is the first city mentioned being built in, in the Bible. And it's kind of interesting to consider the last city that's mentioned. If this is the first city mentioned, the last city to be mentioned, and that's in Revelation 21. Tell me, am I reading just that one verse about the last city mentioned? Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the contrast is striking. When you look at this city being built by a guy who's been banished and cursed, And that's the first city mentioned in the Bible. And the contrast that's provided by the last city being built by God, the creator of the universe, for the people who love and obey him. So kind of cool there, just to see that real quick. Flipping back then to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad. We don't know much else about him. And then Irad begot Mahujael. We don't know much about him either. And then this Mahushael. We don't know much about him either. And then Lamech. And Lamech is interesting because he's actually the seventh generation, if you will. All right, seven is a number of completeness. It's not a number that's insignificant. When you, when you run across the number seven in the Bible, there's usually something interesting about it. By the way, over here in the line of Seth, the seventh is going to be the good Enoch that we know of. So it provides a little bit of a contrast when you compare the seventh from, the, you know, from Adam and Eve through Cain and the seventh through, uh, from Adam and Eve through Seth. And the contrast between these two characters, all right? This guy, he's arrogant, he's vengeful, he's uh, quick He's quick to uh, punish or quick to murder, all right? And you look at Enoch, he walks with God, and he's of the whole line, God takes him early. He doesn't end up dying. He's no more. God presumably saying, you know what, come hang out with me up here. <laughs> come sit up here in the cockpit with me, <laughs> you know, something like that. Kind of cool. So Lamech, let's go look at Lamech over here. And when you read about him, what does it say? He makes a song in verse 23, all right? My New King James Version says, uh, O wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, okay? Some of the other translations and most of the commentators will point out that what follows is kind of a prose or poetry, and it's sometimes called the song of the sword, all right? So it's this arrogant boast on the part of Lamech. And he says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. The wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. So he makes this arrogant boast as, you know what, that Cain guy, my great-great-grandfather, he needed God's protection? I don't need that. I can protect myself. 
My great-great-grandfather, if he was going to be avenged sevenfold, if anybody did anything to him, I can take care of myself, and I'm going to be avenged 77-fold. He's got this arrogant boastfulness, and it's about a murder, and it's not even, it doesn't even sound like it's a just murder in the sense that it's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth type of thing. Because what does Lamech receive out of the deal that he ends up murdering somebody? He's wounded. He gets injured, but he retaliates with murder, and he's boasting about it. By the way, when we get to Lamech and we see that he's got these two wives, this is the first time that we run across in the Genesis narrative where a, a guy takes two wives. All right, Anybody know what that's called? Polygamy. Polygamy, exactly. So here we've got the introduction of the idea of polygamy. Polygamy, uh, taking more than one wife. All right. Polygamy is a situation where, in some sense, justifiable in the eyes of the people and the cultures that were participating in it, because you would usually, because of warfare, uh, have more, you would have more women than men. You go out to war, the men fight, you know, and you lose half your men. You come back to town, what are we going to do with the other women <laughs> that need husbands? So there was a need there in a sense that they would, in their eyes, justify taking upon themselves more than one wife. You also had a situation where women would often die in childbirth. So you, hey, my family, I got to keep my family going on. Lost that wife. Good thing I got a second one or a third one or what, however many you got to make up for the woman who died and you got to keep having children. And it's an agricultural society for the most part. So you, the more kids you have, the more of a labor force you've got. And sometimes there would be arrangements between powerful families where they would give a woman in marriage to this man and therefore there's an alliance created between families. You even see this on a large scale with even kings and monarchs. They would trade with a nation the women to be wives. So, for example, Pharaoh might give his daughter to marry Solomon. And part of that arrangement would be, this is going to assure that you and I are going to stay, you know, Solomon and Pharaoh, that you and I are going to stay pretty close and pretty tight. Because if things fall apart, you've got my daughter. And if I wanted to do something against your nation, you could actually harm me by harming my daughter. And, you know, so by doing this, it's kind of creating an alliance between nations, kind of a cooperative uh, arrangement like that, where it's understood, we're going to make this pact and we're going to seal a pact by, you know, I'm going to give you my daughter. Oh, by the way, so this polygamy thing, what have we seen so far in chapter 2, verse 24, Genesis 2, 24, that maybe speaks to this in some sense as to what God's idea was? Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Joined to his what? Wife. Wife. Singular, right? Yes, yeah. God's plan is a husband and a wife, not a husband and wives. 2.24 sets up the standard or the pattern for us. With that being said, though, who can name for me some other people that are famous in the Bible, in Genesis, who had more than one wife? Abram, kind of. I yes. Guess. Yeah. Abram, Abraham ended up having Sarah as a wife, but he also had Hagar. So he had children by her. Jacob. That doesn't quite go with God's plan. It's more of a polygamy situation. Jacob or Isaac. Jacob, right? Good. Okay, so we've got Abraham, and then Jacob had Rachel and Leah, right? He ends up, you remember that story, he ends up working seven years <laughs> yeah. for Laban. Really his choice. <laughs> yeah, and he wants to marry... Woman A, 
and he gets married and then wakes up in the morning and finds out who he married was actually woman B. And uh, then they work out another ring. Well, work seven more years and you can have woman A too. You know, the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. So yeah, you've got Abraham, you've got Jacob. Here's this interesting situation. Victor P. Hamilton, he is the commentator on the book of Genesis from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series. And he says this, For the first time in the Bible, monogamous marriage breaks down. Lamech has two wives, Ada and Zillah. Thus, chapter 2, verse 24, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, becomes, shall cleave to his wives. To be sure, no rebuke from God is directed at Lamech for his violation of this marital arrangement. It is simply recorded. But that is the case with most Old Testament illustrations of polygamy. Abraham is not condemned for cohabitating with Sarah and Hagar, nor is Jacob for marrying simultaneously Leah and Rachel. In fact, however, nearly every polygamous household in the Old Testament suffers most unpleasant and shattering experiences precisely because of this ad hoc relationship. The domestic struggles that ensue are devastating. It's interesting. It comes from Cain's line, not Abel's. Exactly. You're right. It comes from Cain's line. One of the neat things, too, is you see the sons of Lamech, and you you can hear the similarities in their names. Can you hear that? Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. All right? So these are his sons, and they all have that kind of a sound to it. And it turns out that they're all kind of plays on this word. Yebel. Okay? And that word actually means to produce. In Hebrew, it means to produce. And what ends up happening as we read about these sons, they end up becoming sort of producers, in a sense, of different types of work or different lines of work. What does it say that Jabal is credited with? Verse 20. Father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So he's being given credit for being the father of or the producer of the livestock, the dwellers in tents. By the way, regarding livestock, wouldn't we be tempted to think, wait a minute, I thought, I thought, I would think Abel should get credit for that, right? Because wasn't an wasn't Abel a keeper of the sheep, right? You remember that? The word that's used for livestock here for Jabal and the word that is used in association with what Abel had going for him, all right? The word being used for Abel is for small animals, for sheep and goats primarily. It's a word that's used to describe sheep and goats or small uh, small forms of domesticating of, of the animals. Where for Jabal, it's a much broader word and includes large animals, including donkeys and camels, all right? So he's he's got to go, he's made a business out of it, <laughs> all right? Whereas Abel was just getting it off the ground. He gets credit for, for making it a big, uh, a big to-do. All right, how about Jubal? He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. All those who play the harp and the flute. So here we have a musician in the family. <laughs> all right. So you've got a good uh, herdsman, you've got a musician going on, and, and he takes it and takes it to another level. Regarding the specific instruments, what were they again? The harp and flute. The harp and flute. And that actually matches with archaeologically what's been found. They have found in Egyptian caves, in tombs in Ur, and also in the Mesopotamian area, that some of the earliest instruments were flutes and harps. Mm -hmm. And they find that uh, a lot of times those things can be dated back to the 3rd and 4th century, or I'm sorry, the 3rd and 4th millennia before Christ. So we're talking the timeline that the Bible would suggest. So it's neat to see archaeology support what we're reading about in the Bible. Kind of cool. Regarding the flutes, some have been made out of bone, some have been made out of pottery, and even two of them in Egypt were found made out of metal. All right, so kind of neat there. 
How about Tubal Cain? What is he getting credit for? The Say that again. The metal. The metal, the metal right? Metal, so uh, kind of metal working, right? We got a we got a smith back in the family, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Have metal smith. So yeah, what kind of metals? Bronze and iron. Bronze and iron. When you're looking at the development and and the use of metal materials, usually it goes copper first. If you're looking at historically, what was the first metal that was really being used? It was copper. And then after that ends up being bronze because they end up discovering tin and you, you can merge tin and copper and you, get, you can start to work with bronze. And then you've got iron and iron is a later date usually. So some people used to object and say, oh, hey, how can that be right? The Bible talks about this guy dealing in including iron, bronze and iron. We're talking about two different eras. And then they came to find out that they were actually using meteorites that meteorites actually predated the actual iron use. And you could cold smelt, or you could cold uh, forge meteorites. You take meteorites, and they're, they're metal rocks, right? They're yeah, iron. Yeah. They're largely iron with a little bit of nickel. And you can actually hammer those suckers into something or, or shape them into something much before they actually were smelted. So it's kind of cool to see this where some people would look at this and go, oh, come on now, we can't believe it now because we know the dates and ages of iron and we know the dates and ages of copper and bronze. How can you have this, you know, iron was later than this? Well, it turns out, no, you go back and you look and it turns out meteorites, iron and nickel, they were able to fashion and work with those. So yeah, so these guys each get credit of some sort for producing and they end up having names that sound like, or phonetically, a similarity to that word that has to do with producer. So J-Ball, Jubal, and Tubal, Tubal came. And the name she just gets mentioned as, well, she's a daughter being born <laughs> to one of the wives of Lamech. All right? All right. Let's look at Lamech's song here, the song of the sword. He calls his wives over. He wants them to hear my voice, the wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. Look at verse 23 of the second half of verse 23. How many people did he kill? Killed a man. Killed a man. All right. What else does it say? Even a young man. Even a young man. Is that one or two? It sounds like two. Any other votes? Maybe just killed a young man. All right. Could be. Yeah. The commentators are not, there's no consensus. Some would say, oh, this is two. And some would say, oh, this is one. Some would say, this is two. He killed a man and he killed a young man. And others would say, no, no, this is an example of parallelism. And they would point out uh, earlier in that verse where it says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. And then the parallel part, O wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. And they would say, see, that says the same thing. It just says it a second time in different words. So some would use that argument and say, no, he only killed one person. He just said it twice. And then others would say, no, no, these two words, the man and the young man, are different. They describe different categories of people, different age groups or age brackets, and therefore it's two people. We don't know. Either way, you're looking at a bad dude, <laughs> right? This is a guy that doesn't have respect for somebody else's life. This is a guy that disdains other people's lives. And when he says that I'll be avenged 77-fold or 77 times, he said that's, that's his... If seven is a number of completeness, then 77 is a number of utmost extreme picture of completeness, all right? He's saying, I will exact all vengeance on somebody who would defy me by injuring me or wounding me. Right? So you've got a bad dude, and this is actually, he's the epitome of the line of Cain as to what can become as you follow this line. All right? He becomes kind of the, the snapshot picture, the poster child, if you will, of the ungodly line of Cain. And this is all being set up for us 
so that when we look at the line of Seth, the contrast is glaring. All right, so that when we start chapter 5 and we start putting the names over there, that we start to see, wow, this is a really different line. And we start to get a hint of that in the end of chapter 4 here, where it starts to talk about where Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth to him, also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. The last part of that last verse, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So you've got in that line, just in the beginning, the introductory remarks that there's something different about that line. There's something about their relationship with God that they bring to the table. Cain's line, yeah, they bring the arts and crafts to the table. But it's Seth's line that brings the worship of God to the table. It's Seth's line through which God is going to do his greatest thing and through which the Messiah is going to be born. You look at the genealogies of Christ and you find you can trace it back, not through Cain's line, you trace it back actually through Seth's line and you find out that's the line that Christ came from as, as the picture unfolds, as it gets bigger. Okay. Another thing as well when you're looking at this, look at those verses 25 and 26. In verse 25, you see that turn of phrase, Adam knew his wife. It's the same thing we saw in verse 17. Cain knew his wife. Of course, we've talked about this before when, when Adam knew his wife the first time. This is a way of getting, you know, she's getting pregnant. They're, they're making love. They're having sexual relations. All right. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named him Seth. The name Seth, there's actually another play on words going on here. By the way, all these play on words that are going on, they're all in Hebrew. And what that tells us is, based on the names these guys have and the puns that are associated with many of these names, it tells us clearly that the original language of this is Hebrew. It doesn't work in any other language. All right. So the play on words, the puns, are indicators that this is all, the background is all in Hebrew. Okay. So Seth ends up, his name actually means appointed or granted. Can you see the play on words in that verse where it mentions his name? Check in that verse and see what you find. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. Good. Yeah, so it's Eve making a declaration. I'm pregnant. I'm having a son. I have a son, and I'm going to name him granted because that's what God has done for me. He's granted. Or I'm going to name him appointed because God has. that's what God's done for me. He has appointed that I can have another child. Does it say child, though? What's the word that she uses? Seed. Seed. What's significant about that? What's significant about that? Where have we seen that before? The curse. The curse. Me. Tell me more about that, Dave. Between your seed and her seed. Remember the curse yeah. and the promise of a deliverer or a messiah. Eve's still looking for that seed, right? And here, when she has Seth, she's like, God has granted to me another chance. By the way, did Adam and Eve know about the curse on Cain? Earlier in the chapter, in chapter 4, we don't know that God sent anybody to actually notify Adam and Eve that he was banishing Cain. Until we get to this verse, we know that they knew about the situation at the end of verse 25. Because from Eve's own lips, she says, another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Right? So... We don't know when they found out. Could have been the day it happened. Could have been well after that, but they found out. We get these situations where the defendant in the courtroom setting, in the criminal trial, hasn't quite told the whole story to mom. And mom comes and watches the trial, and she's like adamant that her boy wouldn't do anything like that. But she didn't hear the parts in the trial that he didn't want her. You know, don't come on Tuesday. It's just going to be too hard for you, mom. 
you know, when Tuesday was the day that it was all laid out. And mom comes, and she's like, this is wrong. My son wouldn't do this. And, and my judge will call him on it. She'll say, you weren't here on the day that that came out. And she's done that Wow, before. really? She's told them. Yeah, she's told moms, you weren't here. Or wives. Sometimes it's wives. You weren't here on the day that that all she came out. She pays attention to that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. So here's a situation where, you know, maybe Cain wanted to present a little story to mom. Hey, mom, you know, I got to go. I'm supposed to, you know, go for a long hike. Oh, it might be a while. You know, Cain could present any type of story he wants, but whatever the story might have been, mom mm-hmm. knew the truth by the time we get to this mm-hmm. verse, right? Mom knew that Cain had killed Abel. Another seed instead of Abel. So Eve's still looking for the fulfillment of that promise. She's still looking for a savior. She sees that promise as having a, it's got to be close to happening. But God's timing isn't always our timing. We know from the situation, it's going to be a good 4,000 years <laughs> before Christ comes along. That's a long time. But she is holding on to God's promises. Sometimes God's promises, we have promises that we hold on to in, God, in our life. Promises that we feel like, this is a promise that God has made that I feel like I can embrace. I feel like this is something for me. And we might hope that it's just around the corner. That it's right around the corner is the next thing to come. When in fact in God's timing, it might be farther out than we would comfortably admit. That maybe God is saying, I promise you something. I'm going to make good on it. But it might be farther away than just around the corner. That it might be something down the road. Farther than... If I was to tell you, you would feel comfortable waiting. Mm-hmm. All right? So God is... Let's let God be God and do what he wants to do in our lives on his timing. Sometimes we mess things up. If you remember Abraham and Sarah, and God had promised them a kid. And time went by, and they decided to come up with their own plan. You know what? How about we just do what's culturally okay, and you just take Hagar and have a kid through her? Was that, God's, was that God's plan? Was that the kid that God had promised? No, that was not the son of promise. That messed things up. When we try to interject our good ideas into God's plan for our lives, sometimes we only accomplish in messing it up. Be still and know that he is God. Rest and relax in God and in his timing. Let God's promise for your life come to fruition at his time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we're looking at ancient words from an ancient document. And yet it's startling how relevant it can be for our lives today and what you would say to us and what you would have for us to use as a foundation for finding out and discovering who you are and how you deal with your people. Help us to be patient, Lord. We pray for your spirit. You promised that your spirit would lead us in truth. Lord, we want to know the truth. We pray that you would help us to receive from the spirit what you would have us to know for today and to be patient about what you intend to reveal to us later. Thank you, God, for laying it out here. The examples, good and bad, for us to see and for us to learn lessons from. Go with us now. We pray for those that aren't with us, that you would bless them, care for them, and bring them back. And for those that are hurting, please make them whole and well. In Jesus' name, amen.